0: Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to the Real-Time History Podcast. Today, we have a returning guest. Yes, a two-time offender,
1: Dr. Wanda Wilcox, who, uh, Wilcox, geez, I'm saying that with a German accent now, Dr. Vanda Wilcox, how's that for integration, um, was kind enough to join us for the second time. And it's a pleasure every time that we get the chance to talk to her because she's an expert in Italy during the Great War, which is definitely not an area that I have read as much about as I would like. So it's always like full of surprises and neat factoids and things that I hadn't come across before. And it was no different today.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think since we are now starting to lean a bit more into the era before the first world war leading up to it Uh, i mean first of all with our new project that we just launched which will cover the franco-prussian war uh, week by week in real time glory and defeat and also with our recent podcast episodes like about sarajevo 1914 with miss wilcox's new book we're taking a broader view on italy as an empire which I hadn't really considered, but of course, Italy was a colonial power as well. And as she said, you know, just because it wasn't uh, as big as the British Empire or the French Empire, um, it definitely was one. And the Italian-Libyan conflict uh, right before the start of World War One is definitely an important stepping stone, so to speak, on the way to World War One. Indeed. And that is something that we talked
1: about in a little bit more detail, plus I have to say, I had no idea that the Serbs marched tens of thousands of Austro-Hungarian prisoners with them on their great retreat through Albania. No, I ha- no, they, they leave that out. Yeah, that, that whole story somehow, in all the reading I've done about it, never stuck out to me. So that was an absolutely fascinating, plus colonial troops. We really got into all sorts of cool stuff.
0: Um, Her book is coming out um, as a part of a book series that we are basically eating up uh, since uh, 2019. Uh, It's the Greater War series. Who's publishing it again? It's published by Oxford University Press and it's edited by
1: Robert who we also had on the podcast and who is like one of the world experts and who's been focusing on this
0: sort of expanding the concept of the first world war yeah so basically every book in this series is highly recommended and this new book by dr wanda wilcox is especially recommended uh, and If you want a teaser why this book and this topic is so fascinating, just listen to the interview, which will start in 3, 2, 1. So today joining me on the
1: podcast is Dr. Vanda Wilcox, who's a historian of Italy, and she's written extensively on that topic, including books like Morale and the Italian Army in the First World War, and as editor of Italy in the Era of the Great War but she's also the author of a new book that's coming out in Oxford University Press's Greater War series, which I can't recommend enough to all you listeners out there, and it's called The Italian Empire and the Great War, and that is why I went and invited uh, Dr. Wilcox to the podcast for a return visit, and I promise... this time I won't refer to Gabriele D'Annunzio as a war veteran because last time time you gave me grief for that but thank you for coming back (laughs) in in spite of that.
2: Well thank you for inviting me back in spite of uh, giving you grief. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm delighted to be here and I'm delighted to, to have a chance to talk about my new book and the new project.
1: Good, well then let's start at the beginning. How did the book come about? Were you sort of Hanging around in Italy or Paris, I think you bounced between the bounced between the two countries and thought, you know what, we need something on the Italian Empire, and voila, or what's the story?
2: Um, partly, yeah. It's something which I was very aware of as a kind of missing piece of the picture, that most histories of Italy in the First World War don't talk about empire. But actually, Italy, just two years before the First World War began, had fought in Libya, right? There's the, the italo turkish War, of 1911 1912 the whole country mobilizes there's a huge amount of fanfare it's this really big national event it's the 50th anniversary of italian unification everyone's excited about empire and then suddenly the first world war comes along and empire kind of disappears from the picture um and then actually you already mentioned the greater war series The, the project of the greater war series is very much to think in a series of books about the war more broadly, so more broadly in time and in place. And uh, they contacted me and they said, would you be interested in looking at Italy in a broader imperial context? And absolutely, yes, I am. So it, it sort of came together very nicely.
1: So you got you got headhunted for the, for the job. That's, that's a good, <laughs> uh, that's not a bad story to have. So- It's nice, yeah. Uh, then let me start with another basic here in a sense. Why should we care about the Italian empire? I mean, I, I'm not going to mince words. In a way, you could say it's one of the punier empires from among the great powers. Not to say Italy's not an important belligerent, but the imperial part just seems like a bit of an afterthought. But wh- why is it actually deserving of our attention?
2: Okay, well, I mean, I, I see where you're coming from. I, the first thing I'd say is that's a very Eurocentric viewpoint if you're in Africa, the African Empire, uh, the uh, Italian colonies in Africa actually seem quite important. Um, And actually, if you want to understand the war as a global event, not just a European event, this is a really important part of it. Um, Because in my book, I talk about what the Italians understood by empire, and that meant their formal colonies, but it also meant their diaspora. It also meant all of those emigrants who'd left Italy. And as we know, there were millions of people who'd left Italy in the the decades immediately before the war. And Italy conceived of them as being part of the empire at that time. So if we really want to think about the First World War as a global war and uh, and not just a European event, and I know that you're very keen to not just look at the Western Front and the same old stories, um, actually the Italian empire is a big part of that. But the other reason I think it's really important is that if we only think about the Italian war effort as a national event and not an imperial event as well, we miss a really big part of what Italy is trying to do and of why um, at the end of the war, things seem to go so badly wrong. I know that the post-war events, the, the occupation of Fiume, the sense of the mutilated victory and the rise of fascism, are quite. Um, there's a lot going on in a very short space of time. And one part of the puzzle of why things go so badly wrong in Italy is actually to do with the imperial story as well. So I think we need to bring that into global war and to understand the italian experience but yes it's smaller compared to france and britain but i don't know that france and britain are a good metric because actually there's a lot of other empires that maybe look more like italy like belgium japan portugal uh, spain the netherlands even denmark um, you know feudal things here and there uh, if we don't only see france and britain as the norm of an empire in this period then Italy doesn't look quite so much of an outlier
1: Right. Uh, for the record, of course, I was playing devil's advocate, naturally,
2: uh, <laughs> to set you up
1: for that. Um, but let's let's keep that idea of empire you weren't now. You were
2: saying what's the point of your book? <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> what's the, the point thought. What you've just done? Perish
1: the thought. Um, so let's keep that idea then of, of empire, because I want to contrast it maybe a little bit with the idea of a nation state, because Italy, I mean, that's what a lot of people associated with in this period, right? And you mentioned the unification in the 19th century. It's still in the process, in the minds of many Italians, it's still in the process of of completing that unification during the period of the First World War of the nation state. But it has this empire at the same time. So how do these two ideas coexist? in Italian political life or how do they clash? I mean, I think you kind of foreshadowed that a bit with your last answer, but take us down that road a little bit further.
2: Uh, Yeah, you're right. It's a real tension and a kind of oddity in a way. You might think that you would finish building your nation before you started to build an empire, right? But actually um, the two things are are really kind of closely connected. Um, As you know, the Italians entered the war with this irredentist idea. In other words, they say the nation is incomplete and that there's new territories to conquer. Now, right off, from 1861, from the moment of unification, there's been a sense that Italy was incomplete, that there were new territories to conquer. So Italian nationalism is also an expansionist project. It's a project of completing the nation, sure. But this gets a bit tricky if you're allied to Austria-Hungary. How are you going to complete the nation and acquire those new territories when they're currently in the hands of your ally? So from 1882 onwards, when Italy and Austria allied, Italy kind of has to turn elsewhere to satisfy expansionist aspirations. And almost frustrated in its inability to, to do that nationally, colonies become a kind of substitute. So the two things are quite closely connected, right? Colonies is almost an alternative. OK, we can't get Trent or we can get Libya instead, right? So we're still growing, we're still establishing ourselves. Um, It doesn't mean that we don't care about Toronto, but it means that there are other ways that Italy can prove that it's a a great power. It's also the second way that's connected to the nation building issue. It's also connected to emigration. Lots of millions of Italians are leaving, where are they going? They're going mostly to the Americas and they're kind of lost their financial and economic contribution, their military contribution is lost. If there are colonies, the the nation hopes it could divert that emigrant flow towards colonies and thus kind of keep them Italian. So keep them within the the overall borders of the Italian nation.
1: Okay. Now I I have a follow-up question to that, actually. When we talk about, you know, there was this concept of wanting to expand, there was an idea that Italy was still incomplete. Who are we talking about who has these ideas? Because I can imagine that the idea of an industrialist in Milan or a journalist in Rome or a peasant in Sardinia might have a sort of different relationship to these concepts. So how does that sort of break down?
2: For sure. Yeah, the question of public opinion and, and who cares about these issues is a really important one. Um, and of course, there is a difference on rural and urban lines. There's regional differences, there's educational differences. Um, the idea of national unification is definitely something that's much more interested to, interesting to the middle and upper classes, um, as is colonialism by and large. Um, un, national unification is something that Crosses the left-right divide, right? There's plenty of kind of left-wing Republican-style nationalists, um, uh, democratic interventionists, we call them in 1915. There's also right-wing nationalists who want to kind of expand in a uh, in a more uh, traditionally um, conservative way. So it, it can cross left-right political divides, but it's definitely a, a concern of the middle and upper classes. What's interesting though is that already in 1911. Uh, when they go to war against Turkey to conquer Libya. There is a real effort in terms of media mobilization. The press becomes really important here and newspapers across the political divide and across the country and even across interest groups. So Catholic newspapers versus um, uh, more kind of secular ones all come together to support the imperial war efforts in 1911. And there's a real effort to teach children at school, pro-imperialist theatre shows, there's posters, visual campaigns, you know, there's a really sort of cross-national media campaign in favour of the Imperial War of 1911, 1912. So, it's not necessarily the case that you have to be uh, someone, for example, who might directly profit like a financial or business interest. It it can go across, the interest in expanding colonially does whip up a lot of popular support.
1: Okay, now, You mentioned uh, just a few moments ago that there was this complication in terms of Italian expansion and national aims that their ally prior to the war was Austria-Hungary. And one of our listeners had a question related to that, and uh, he or she basically says that they didn't really understand why Italy was in theory potentially a part of the central powers if it If the conditions were such that it could renege on the agreement, and why did it decide to sort of switch sides when, you know, there were some rumblings that, uh, well, the the listener puts it that it coveted territory also that the Entente had. And I know there's the question of the sort of French-Italian border and so on. So how did, how, how did Italy end up in this uh, alliance and why, why did it end up in the strange situation that it did then on the, on the eve of the Great War?
2: For sure. Yeah, it's a good question. And that's absolutely spot on. I mean, the idea of uh, completing the nation could also include evidentism at the cost of France, right? So Nice is the birthplace of Garibaldi and it's a terrible blow to Garibaldi, but it's all Italian nationalists that Nice is lost. Um, I think the answer to the question is Germany. Italy doesn't really want to be allied with Austria Hungary, particularly in 1882. Italy wants to be allied with Germany. Germany is the most powerful uh, military power. They need something to counterbalance France because there's a lot of Italian French rivalry, um, particularly naval rivalry. So Italy wants to be allied with Germany, and Austria Hungary is kind of a friend that tags along too, as far as Italy is concerned. Um, they, they have to accept Austria Hungary as a price of the alliance that they want with Germany. Um, but no, it doesn't make a great deal of sense, and it's not particularly popular. Um, plenty of people are, are delighted at the opportunity to to chop this alliance out of the window. It made sense as long as it was a defensive alliance that was going to keep them safe. But when it starts to look like it might drag them into war, it no longer makes any strategic sense for Italy to to stay in the triple alliance.
1: Okay, now. Once the war gets going, uh, all the powers engage their empires to the extent that they can. And of course, here again, I think the default is very often to look at the French and British case, where they bring in troops from overseas colonies and send them to different fronts, sometimes the Western Front, sometimes um, against the Ottomans and so forth. What about Italy? Did they have any sort of effective colonial troops uh, eritreans or somalis who were serving in a military capacity because that's not something that very often uh, comes up
2: Mm -hmm. yeah this is a great question so the italians do have colonial troops they started to recruit them back in the 1880s firstly in eritrea and that's where the the majority come but there are somalis and even um occasionally volunteers from elsewhere in east africa a few ethiopians end up even uh, people from yemen who've come across the red sea um And starting in 1912, once the war is over, they also begin to recruit in Libya. So by the time the First World War breaks out, there's quite extensive East African troops. um, And they they serve in all the different arms of the military, mostly as infantry, but they're also very prized for their light cavalry. So you get these kind of irregular cavalry units, um, both from East Africa and from from Libya, uh, with an all-white officer corps that's been sent out from Italy, right? So they have um, indigenous indigenous non-commissioned officers, but white Italian officers. So in 1915, the discussion begins, what are we going to do with these men? Are we going to send them to fight in Austria? And actually, Against Austria. And actually, one of the people who's most enthusiastic about the idea of using them on the, uh, on the Austrian front is Luigi Cadorna, the Italian chief of general staff. He says, these are trained men of the Italian army. We should be using them. Um, and he sends a proposal to immediately dispatch uh, significant numbers of Uh, of the colonial troops. They call them Asghari, which is from the Arabic word for soldier, like the same as the Germans call their East African troops. Um, Cardona says, let's send the Asghari. And in particular, there's one group which is an issue and that's the Libyans because Libya has, uh, I think we're going to discuss perhaps in a moment, it has an ongoing uh, anti-colonial rebellion at this moment in time. So there's a bit of anxiety in the Italian authorities send them against the rebels as the Italians saw them are they going to fight properly if we send them against Austrians then that question perhaps doesn't arise so we actually have a group of nearly 5,000 Libyan soldiers that have been removed from Libya because they're considered potentially unreliable there and they're sent to Sicily and they're put in a training camp and some men come down to train them in how to fight in trench warfare. They build some mock trenches. They show them how the barbed wire cutters work and all this sort of thing. And then after a couple months, they say, yeah, they're ready to dispatch. No. At this point, the civilian government come in and say, hang on a minute. Are we sure that we want to send African servicemen into battle against, okay, they're the enemy, but they're still civilized European Catholics basically for racial issues the the civilian government is unwilling to to countenance the idea they 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 see this as kind of a descent into barbarism and they're just not willing to to do it even though these men are there trained and they can't be used anywhere else right the libyan soldiers in particular they can't use them in libya in case they rebel and they won't use them against austria so they literally just sit there uh, in sicily um, causing trouble with the local population who are not happy about having some large military camp in the middle of nowhere um, uh, and seducing local women, aco- at least according to the to the police complaints, right? So uh, it's a really interesting example that, that shows how different the Italian experience is because, you know, the French and British are cheerfully deploying people from all over the world on the Western Front and in the Middle East. And the Italians actually kind of waste this potential military resource,
1: yeah, that's interesting. That uh, that is news to me. I have to say, I learned uh, something new today. Libyan troops stationed in in Italy during the First World War. Um, let's stick with uh, let's stick with the Libya topic for a moment because we had another listener who was curious about Libya. And maybe before we get into the details of that question, tell us a bit about the rebellion in Libya. What's going on there and well, maybe we wrap it in, and then the, the the listener was wondering about whether the Ottomans were able to somehow get in contact with the rebels because it used, it was an Ottoman province, right, until just or a possession until a few years before. Was there any way that they could get in contact with these rebels? Was there any kind of coordination?
2: Yeah, this is a great question, actually. Um, so, the just to introduce the the insurrection, when peace is made in nineteen twelve between. Italy and the Ottoman Empire, they agree that the province will pass into the hands of Italy. But the people of the province didn't agree with this at all. They're not part of that deal. And they've been fighting alongside the Ottomans against Italy in 1911, 1912. Basically, they continue to fight the population of uh, the three separate regions of Libya um, continues to fight. It's it's a bit misleading in a way even to talk of Libya in this period because Tripolitania and Cyrenaica and the Fezzan are, are kind of three separate areas. Um, but, yeah, they, they just keep fighting, basically. And in 19, end of 1914, they begin a major new campaign, partly stimulated by um, some serious Italian mismanagement and also encouraged by the war, encouraged by uh, the Sultan's call to jihad, Um, and very much with Ottoman support. So, yeah, this is an absolutely spot-on question. Um, The Ottomans continue to closely liaise with the leaders of the anti-Italian movement throughout this whole period. And they actually, uh, they're sending officers, quite senior officers. um, They're sending uh, cash, they're sending munitions, weapons. Uh, The most important person that they actually send is the brother, the younger brother of Enver Pasha. So Enver Pasha is the Ottoman minister for war. His younger brother, Nuri Bey, is sent in 1915 to Cyrenaica. He spends a couple of years there. Then after the situation in Cyrenaica settles down, he moves over into Tripolitania. He's actually given the title of Africa Groups Command within the Ottoman Imperial Army. He has a, a staff of at least 30 officers and quite a lot of men. He's moving around, acting as kind of military advisor and uh kind of he's there to poke them with a stick if they stop rebelling basically uh, but he's providing practical encouragement and advice he's like prussian military trained he's been at the academy in potsdam right he he fought in the libyan war of 1911 1912 and he's there throughout the entire conflict uh, until uh, i think the end of july 1918 they finally withdraw him then they send um the gra- a grandson of the sultan prince osman fuat so a senior member of the of the Ottoman royal family is also there in 1918 to kind of keep stirring things up um how are they doing it they're doing it with the help of the Germans it's entirely run through German submarines from 1916 through to the end of the war a German submarine lands once a fortnight at Misrata on the Tripolitanian coast Misrata has a radio and it's in radio connection with Constantinople on an almost daily basis and then German and occasionally Austrian but mostly German subs are, are bringing. The material in. And there's some Germans and Austrians in there, too, as well, kind of getting in trouble. There's a, a kind of minor prince of the Austrian royal family who turns up there in 1918. There's some German and Austrian officers helping out.
1: Well, then tell us slightly more about them. That sounds like quite, uh, quite a tricky situation to be in. It is. Kind of hard to go undercover yeah. uh, in Libya in 1918 <laughs> when you're a minor Austrian prince. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, some of them are, quite a few of them come into the border from Egypt, actually. They get into Egypt and then they're, they're kind of smuggled across. Uh, so there's a kind of land route as well as the sea route. The real problem is, is that the Allies are patrolling so much of the Mediterranean that patrolling the Libyan coast isn't yet another burden. And they're not able to keep a very effective control. So a surprising amount of... Um, of people uh, uh, can be smuggled in and if they land in those sections of the coast that are in the hands of the rebellion and most of Libya by this stage is is, is rebelled Like the, the, the Italians only hold two very small coastal strips that don't even join up right? so there's a little bit of Cyrenaica and a little bit of Tripolitania and all of the interior is completely gone so actually it's surprisingly easy um, for people to move around in the, the bits that Italy can't even pretend to control um, and it's actually a very interesting moment. There's, there's all of these local independent leaders. In 1914, 1915, they might have perhaps welcomed a return of the Ottoman Empire. But by the end of the war, they're not interested in that either. They're interested in full independence. So it's a really important kind of anti-colonial movement. In November 1918, um, in Tripolitania, they declare the world's first independent Arab republic. Uh, two men, Ramadan al swahili and Suleiman al-Baruni and a small group of others, the kind of local tribal leaders, basically, who've come to the fore in the last decade or so. Um, a lot of them had previously worked with the Ottomans, but by 1918, they can see that that's kind of a failing power. And they, they come together and declare a, a a republic. It doesn't last very long. And the Italians, ultimately, as you probably know, are going to go on the counteroffensive later on in the 20s. But it's a, a fascinating a uh, kind of political moment of awakening, I think, for the people of Tripolitania and Cyrenaica.
1: That is an absolutely fascinating aspect uh, to the story, I have to say. Um, let's jump back to a more traditional side of Italy's war, because one of our listeners was wondering about the Italian approach to prisoners of war, both the ones that um, they took, and Italians who were captured by the Austrians. So the listener asks why Italians had a sort of belligerent attitude to their own soldiers who surrendered. And then I guess I would tack on, and how did they treat the Austro-Hungarian prisoners that they themselves uh, were responsible for capturing?
2: Yeah, this is a, this is a good question. I think your, your listener here is referring, uh, I guess, in part to the very, very high, the unusually high death rates suffered by Italian prisoners, whether officers or men, once they'd been captured uh, by the Austro-Hungarians uh, or indeed the Germans. And a big part of that is that the Italian authorities refused to take on the responsibility of sending food, medical supplies and so on to support their prisoners, uh, their men who'd been who'd been captured by the enemy. And uh, this is a really political issue uh, that the army high command, especially under Cadorna, but afterwards as well, to some extent, did not trust ordinary soldiers in the least, suspected that they were all kind of potential traitors and deserters. And uh, certainly under Cadorna, the mentality was anyone who was taken prisoner was basically a deserter. Um, Some of them were even tried in absentia for desertion, but... Simply the act of being captured was seen as a sign that you lacked confidence in victory, um, and therefore, why should the Italian state bother to send you medicine or food if you were a traitor and a deserter? Um, and this is particularly prevalent, sadly, after Caporetto. So at Caporetto, um, I think it's about actually 280,000, but people usually say 300,000. It's several hundred thousand prisoners are captured. And they're taken off to camps mainly in Austria, but some in Germany as well. Um, and the death rates are astonishingly high, uh, because, of course, by that point, the central powers don't have much food to spare to feed their prisoners themselves. Um, and the stories of Italian prisoners who survived and returned are atrocious. Uh, you know, they're kind of digging potato peelings out of dung heaps and eating them. Um, but 100,000 Italians die in prisoner of war camps which is a really extraordinary number so yeah it's it's a political issue it's the decision that the masses are untrustworthy and people are deserted and it's a it's i think one of the most kind of brutal uh, examples of the italian military mentality in terms of the prisoners that end up in italian hands um, mostly austro-hungarians uh, how are they treated well <sighs> They're, they're not treated as brutally or they, they don't have the same experience that the Italians are having. Uh, but there's still a financial issue. There's not that I don't think they're having a fan, particularly fantastic time. I think the, the group that are the most unlucky are probably the Austro-Hungarians who end up on the um, on the island of Azinara. And these are the Austrians that were captured by the Serbian army. Uh, in 1914-1915. This is a really terrible story. As the Serbian army retreated uh, in 1915, it took with it uh, the prisoners that it had captured. Numbers vary. The Italian official history suggests that they had as many as 70,000 at one point. The Serbs say it was more like 40,000, but only 24,000 of them ever reached the coast. They basically are used as forced labor by the Serbian army. The survivors, Italy then helps itself to these survivors, thinking to use them as forced labor. And it takes them to a prison island off the coast of Sardinia called Azinara. Another 7,000 of these unfortunate souls uh, die in transit, uh, either of starvation or of epidemic disease. So from at least 40, possibly as many as 70,000 prisoners captured, only 17,000 ever get to the prison camp. And if you look on, uh, you actually can find it on Google Maps and have a, a bit of a dig around. If you look at Azinara, it's a small island off the coast, off the Sardinian coast, uh, and they're basically stuck in tents and spend the rest of the war um, in just the most atrocious conditions. So, yeah, the life in an Italian POW camp was also potentially quite grim.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's got to be no fun, uh, marching with the Serbians through the, through the Albanian mountains and then... Uh spending the rest of the war in a tent, if you're lucky enough to survive.
2: Uh, there's, a, there's a book on this in Italian, but I haven't seen a, a full book-length treatment of the topic in English. And it's a shame because it's, it's, it's a really multinational story. You need to be able to do the Serbian bit, the Austrians, prisoners, the Italian bit. You know, there's, there's so many pieces of this story, but it's, it's a really um, extraordinary experience that these men go through.
1: Yeah, no kidding. It certainly sounds extraordinary. Um, let's stick with that, with that multinational theme for the next question, because one aspect, and I think you referred to it earlier on, is the Italian diaspora, this global community, which I think is especially numerous in South America and the US. What's their situation during the war? Are they subject to military service? And if they are, do they then actually answer the call and, and uh, perform it? Or what's their opinion?
2: yeah great question i mean there's there are literally millions of italian citizens overseas at this point um in theory if you're an italian citizen you are liable for your military service wherever in the world you may find yourself and um, that also applies to second and even potentially third generation right if you are the child of an italian citizen wherever you are in the world you're an italian citizen too and thus you too are liable for military service now Thinking that sounds a bit ambitious, you'd be right. Um, not all of the men of military age living all over the globe uh, are going to uh, come and serve, but a, a, to me, a surprising number do. Um, it's estimated that about 305, possibly as many as 310,000 uh, Italians from overseas return to fight. So that's about 100,000 from North America mostly the US, but there are some in Canada as well. 50,000 or so from South America and at least 120, maybe 130,000 who are living in other parts of Europe. So there's a lot of Italians who are living in the UK, in France, in Belgium, in Germany. Uh, Most of them have actually come home already in 1914-15 when the war breaks out for pretty obvious reasons. Um, And the remaining few who had not done so then immediately return. Um, in 1915, when the war comes out, uh, and there's a good 20,000 also from from North Africa as well, mostly from Tunisia, where there's a very large Italian community, or from Egypt. Um, so yeah, more than 300,000 um, men return to fight. How do we treat this? Is it are they volunteers? Not really, they're conscripts. But they're, let's put it this way: they, it would have been very easy to not return, and plenty don't. Right? There are many, many draft evaders. Hundreds of thousands of men don't come back so the question of why they do it to me is a very interesting one um I've talked about it a bit in this book but actually uh, a, a scholar an Irish scholar called Selena Daly is in the middle of writing a book about this precisely where she's really dug into the diaries and letters of these returnees or of the people who don't return get at the heart of their motives so we have to wait for her book to find out exactly what's going on but um I, I, my reading is that for some of those who return it's it's patriotism sure but it's also a feeling that if you don't return you might then get in trouble with the italian authorities you might not be able to return later maybe you've got family back in italy you don't want to end up in trouble with uh, with the authorities so that you can't maybe return and see your mum when you want to but uh, i don't know
1: interesting always that toss-up with consent and coercion and so on um yeah that Concludes the list of questions that we had prepared for today. Fascinating stuff. Italy has never been the center of my Great War world of, of interest. So it's a I really enjoy when you when you come on the podcast and we can kind of dive into something that for me is largely uncharted territory. It's really, it's really rewarding. So I want to thank you for joining us. For any of our listeners out there who are now Italophiles files and want to figure out what exactly is going on with the Italian Empire in the First World War, uh, Dr. Wilcox's new book is called The Italian Empire and the Great War, and we will have some links to that in the podcast description. So thank you so much for coming on a second time. I, I really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot from it.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me. It's so much fun to, to be able to talk about this topic, and I hope that your listeners have, uh, have learned something new and, and motivated to find out more about it.